same old trouble Villains always knocking at the door Pretty pictures on the page But nothing ever stays the same Thank you, Vandello, and welcome once again, True Believers, to Graphically Novel. My name is Josh Wasta, a.k.a. Fallout Fieri, and with me, as always, is the Eric Draven to my top hat, the morphine to my mother, the day I turn 30 to all of my visits to Hot Topic. <laughs> oh, God. It's Bear. I think it's top dollar, but I have this beautiful crow, and it's going to... Yeah, I did bring that from home. Yeah, it's going to... We're recording at a different location today. It's going to judge you, sit in judgment, because you didn't know it was top dollar, it was a top hat, but... Okay, he's used to it. <laughs> and as usual for the rest of this season, the lovely and talented Baronessa. Thank you. Good to be here. And as usual, this season, we do have a guest Yay. that I get to introduce. Woo-hoo. We have Justin right here with us. Hello. Hey. So this is actually somewhat of a special episode because The Crow came out in 1994 and our special guest was with me in 1994 in high school I was. when this movie came out. It just seemed very fortuitous that he volunteered for this particular episode, and we're really glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. So we usually ask our guests, because we've all said it throughout this show, how have comic books been involved in your life? Well, from the childhood, it influenced stories my friends and I told, influenced what I was attracted to with literature. Now I teach literature for a living because I'm an English teacher, so I, I think comic books have had a huge impact. To mention, some of my favorite movies are based off of comic books, and the Crow included, which I didn't realize when I first saw The Crow because I was 15 coming off of a really bad breakup, and here was this amazing movie that kind of met my angst. A little bit of that, as Josh remembers. Just a little. Just a bit. <laughs> Rage poetry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What yeah. would you say was your first experience with comic books that you can remember? I got Spider-Man, and it was when he had the black suit, and just one of the issues he was tooling around in that with. I can't remember the details of it because it's been so long ago. Good old Todd McFarlane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, today we are going to be doing The Crow, which is by Jay Obar. And actually, the comic book, this is one of the only ones we've ever done where the same person wrote and drew the entirety of the comic. It was done in a very indie style. Everything was just him. And as we'll get into later, a lot of him was throughout. But let's do first impressions of the comic. I really enjoyed the movie. I, in fact, thought last night that I had the movie memorized. I've watched it enough. I've watched it so many times. And going back and watching it for probably the first time in six, seven years, there was a lot that I had forgotten. And going to the comic... I kind of found that it was a fantastic accent to the movie. It's almost as if the movie and the comic exist as a whole together. I think a lot of stuff really kind of came together for me. But let's go to you, Justin. Well, how long has it been? How long has it been since I watched the movie? Or read the, co- or read the comic? Well, I read the comic a couple months ago, so I was like, when you, we first talked about this, I'm like, i got to read the comic again. Probably been a few years since I've watched The Crow. I'm coming off of a breakup when I'm 14, I'm struggling with undiagnosed depression, anxiety, and what I would come to find out is a borderline personality disorder. And as a coping mechanism, I'm getting into rock music, which included the Crow soundtrack. And that was my introduction to The Cure, Nine Inch Nails, and Rollins, Stone Temple Pilots, Rage Against the Machine, and so on. And so I'm Joy Division. Joy and Nine Inch Nails, you know, which I didn't realize right. was Joy Division. He was covering Joy Division's song. And it had such a huge influence on the comic, as we'll discuss probably in a minute. So I'm blown away by the music, and eventually the video was at the video store. I heard about this, the soundtrack's good, I'll try and watch it. And luckily the video store person didn't check my ID, and I got to go home and watch it. And for a kid with abandonment issues, seeing Eric suffer through my ultimate fear of losing a loved one in the worst way, and getting revenge, all the while quoting Edgar Allan Poe, hooked me. And I eventually bought my own copy, and I'm surprised I didn't wear the tape out on it. And then I realized there was a base off a graphic novel, and probably a couple years after that, I got a copy of it at Barnes & Noble. 
And I was a little confused by the, the differences in the sequence, but other than that, I figured it out and was blown away by the artistry. Because not only does he draw, he also paints. There's, there's painting in it. This piece is a work of art. And what's interesting to me is that there's elements of, it's almost like Sin City before Sin City. Because Sin City came out in 91, he published his first episodes of The Crow, or Pieces of The Crow, in 89, from what I remember. Coming I right into the 90s, yeah. Right. It is very, a very 90s comic. Right. That comic really is almost like it's partly in the 80s, partly in the 90s, because I see elements of both style. And I'm probably going to upset some people by saying this, but it's like one of the best graphic novels to me that's ever been made, simply because of the combination of the artistry, the poetry, the music, the story, and it's, it's a masterpiece to me. And when I was dealing with all these undiagnosed issues, you know, there was a certain comfort in art that communicates suffering. And you don't feel so alone in, in your own suffering. Jen? Well, I was first immediately struck by the similarities in the art style to Sandman. Early David early, 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 early Sandman. It's a little more crude. You can tell that the artist is not at the same level, but it had the same feeling. There was a lot of that. It's mainly black and white, but because of that starkness, it really portrays the emotion of each panel. To piggyback on that, one of the notes that I had was, it seems like it is right in the middle, if you're going to take other 90s influences between... Yanin Vasquez, who did Johnny the Homicidal Maniac mm-hmm. and Invader Zim on the more almost crude scale, mm-hmm. and early Dave McKeon, who was the mm-hmm. Sandman artist. Right in the middle yeah. is where we're going to find J.O. Barr <laughs> with the crow. Right. It's not a simplistic style. It is still mm-hmm. kind of a crude style. I would put Yanin Vasquez's stuff as more of a simplistic style. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think that it was intentional because there are panels that are very well drawn and mm-hmm. very finely drawn yep. as opposed to the majority of the panels. And I think that that was intentional to portray the mood and the, the what's going on. And the individual scenes yeah. at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Right. right. Fair. I absolutely, I wasn't as thrown back into the eighties and nineties as I was in some of the other comics that I've read, having read very few comics in that time frame in my own life, but I was instantly thrown back into teenage angst and, you know, the <laughs> right. pain and suffering like Justin was talking about. It was absolutely, I was like, I was flipping through this and I was just, all these memories just started cropping up from high school. Yeah. Why am I feeling this way? What? Yeah. I don't understand. Oh, wait, you know, he's just, he does a really good job of conveying emotion through his artistry, through his writing. It is very much visually an 80s, 90s artistry, which was a little difficult for me to get through. I can understand that, especially if you were not familiar with that. From oh, the absolutely. Yeah. The one thing that I really enjoyed about the art style, though, is in memory, everything is primarily white. In memory, the background is white. Whereas what is going on currently, the background is always black, and it is that very dark. And Mm -hmm. aspects of that showed up in the movie, Mm -hmm. which I really, really liked. Now, we do keep the story elements of the comic, like, spoiler-ish free, but I will say, and we will get into the story differences, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. but... I will say that that is probably the biggest difference to me was other than the times that Shelley shows up in the movie and there is just an abundance of light, mm-hmm. that seems to be the only time there is light other than candlelight in the flashbacks. Mm-hmm. There's right. always candlelight and that's how they did that. But the comic, we've discussed many other comics and TV shows where we were like, how do you even tell what's current or in the past, especially if they don't put the 10 years ago thing at the bottom of the screen. And we've run into a lot of those in this show. I did not have a problem with it at all with this comic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had problems with some other concepts and some other jumps, but that I never did. Yeah, like, the individual flashbacks were fairly easy to pick out. Right. Because he almost changes his style in certain ones. Because he goes from that crude drawing to all these water, sometimes watercolor just sometimes exactly. a nicer background or just this magnificent piece. He goes to so many different places. And I can see how people might criticize that because it's inconsistent. But at the same time, to me, it shows the range of his ability to draw, to paint, to do all these different things. Right. Well, and he's using that as a device exactly. to inform the reader of what you're looking at. He uses that more fine drawing style, the watercolor. Mm-hmm 
to signify those memories. It also helps that the crow is telling him not to look. Mm -hmm. When he's having a memory, the crow is there saying, don't look. That was a really cool aspect of the comic that was one of the few things I felt was missing from the movie. So when I say that these two are a perfect complement for one another, the comic seems to do a lot more stuff that the movie could not do for a wider audience, and it fills in those gaps. Mm -hmm. The crow in the comic is more of a character Mm -hmm. than it is in the movie, which in the movie it's really more of a... A, a tool or a familiar... Like, well, right. a symbol, almost. It's not necessarily a key character in well, the movie, as it is in the comic. And I'll say in the movie, it is a deus ex machina until the bad guys realize it's a right. deus ex machina. Right. That part also missing from the comics for me. The Crow is just a more interesting Superman. Where we are in the comics... I'll, I'll give you that, to an extent, yeah. Yeah, which we've discussed many times on the show. Yes. Or almost funny Deadpool. Right. (laughs) A a bitter, bitter, not funny at all Deadpool. (laughs) Right. I felt like as much as there was the use of devices to show going from a memory to what's real, it just, this whole story seemed very disjointed. Mm. It starts so abruptly. You're just thrown in and there's no real... You kind of have to figure it out. It's almost like the author assumes, well, you know what you're reading, so I don't have to explain it to you. Which you don't. Right. At all, because this was the first time. I want to talk about that first scene, actually. Yeah. Because I don't think I would have minded if the movie had started with that first scene and him approaching Jones. We won't get into details, but there's a very long back and forth with him and the street thug that he kind of has short tete-a-tete in the movie. But this is a very long, involved conversation about, I do not want to do the things that I'm about to do, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to try and convince you not to have me do that to you. (laughs) It's a very interesting way to start, because I would say it pulled me in. And that may be because I watched the movie. But it pulled me in to be like, okay, what's this dude? What's his deal? Why is this guy important? I feel that there are some comics that do that well, some comics that do not, to just throw you into, and here we are. You're already at the top of the roller coaster. We're on our way down. Let's do this. So my question is for you, then, do you find it different in the movie? Because the movie, to me, they try to hold the audience's hand a lot more. And like, here's where we're starting. This is the legend. This is Here's Eric coming out of the ground. Whereas the comic book, there you go, figure it out. Yeah. Well, I think that you kind of have to in a movie. Right. But I also feel like that opening scene where you see what Eric and Shelley's relationship was Mm -hmm. and why he is the crow, Mm -hmm. I think that's important. And you don't really get any of that until you're like, how many pages into the comic? Right. You don't understand. You don't know why this guy is just running around doing what he's doing. Yeah. I find that amusing that we have another English teacher, English major here. (laughs) That's me, by the way. (laughs) When we talk about the hand-holding and everything, because that's why I don't like the Oxford comma. (laughs) I don't believe it's necessary. That's a story for another day. No, 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 I'm just saying. (laughs) Context clues. We can have this fight. We'll have this fight on an episode, I swear. (laughs) Y'all have have me back. (laughs) I'm very much in favor of the Oxford comma. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Eric coming out of the grave. Mm -hmm. That's a little much. That didn't need to happen. (laughs) I don't think. I think you could very easily just show the grave and then the grave that's empty and not show him actually physically coming out of it. I also do find it interesting that there is, Sarah has visited the graveyard, she's left flowers, and she leaves a single white rose on Eric's grave, and that rose is still there when he's breaking up. I know all four of us have played Vampire the Masquerade. <laughs> on last view, did anyone else be like, that's a little Vampire the Masquerade right there? <laughs> a little bit. Yep. <laughs> Once again, the 90. <laughs> to circle round to that, in the comic, even though Eric was indestructible, the whole supernatural mm. part of that was yep. not really played up as much. I mean, it's whoa, like whoa in the movie. Mm-hmm. I actually kind of appreciated more yeah. in the movie because they started that off at the beginning where he's going back and reliving 
this scenario where he died. Right. And he's like, he swings out the window and he swings back in and he's got these big cuts in his hand and they heal up. Now it's bad 90s. Right. CGI. Yeah. Yes, it's bad yeah. 30 years later. It wasn't that great when it was new, let's face it. It wasn't Jurassic Park by any means. Yeah, fair. But maybe it is a little hand-holdy, but that voiceover that just says, sometimes when something bad happens, a crow brings a soul back right? to life. You kind of have to have that. You got to say, this is what's happening. Because yeah. in the movie... You're like, what, is he a zombie? What's going on? You know, mm-hmm. is, yeah. he, is he a vampire? What is this? So right. in the movie, you do have to hold people's hand a little bit more. It also, I think the movie is for a wider audience. Yeah, absolutely. Than comic book side. No, I agree completely. So there is one supernatural aspect that I want to get out of the way very quickly. And Jen, so you were already an adult by the time I was in my twenties. Yeah, by the time this movie came out, Bear's a little older than we are. I'm trying to remember Uh, where you were. The movie came out in '94. I was a sophomore. Okay, in high school. Okay, so I was a freshman that next year. So I remember the people who had read the comic because this is back when you couldn't jump on the internet find out what the right. rumored extra scenes or anything. You had to wait for the DVD, if they even had them, or the special edition years later mm-hmm. for the director's cut. There yeah. was always the talk of the Skull Cowboy. The Skull mm-hmm. Cowboy was like this urban legend that the Skull Cowboy was originally going to be the deeper part of the Crow movie. And, mm-hmm. and watching a documentary, it was, but it was cut out. And I always thought, from everything I had ever heard, that the Skull Cowboy was a huge part of the comic. And that's why they're going to put it in the movie. School Cowboy shows up in like three panels. They never explain it. (laughs) Seriously, this is the first I'm ever hearing of the Skull Cowboy. You remember seeing him in the comic though, right? No. Randomly, there is a cowboy with a skull face. Right. Do you remember the part of the comic where Eric is on a train and he's looking out the window of the train, and he, there's a horse running alongside, a white horse running Vaguely. alongside the train. Okay. And then all of a sudden, the horse is tangled up in barbed wire. <laughs> oh, and then look, and <laughs> yeah. suddenly here's there's Justin. And I think he's on the train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's yeah. literally on the yeah. train. I must have completely spaced that out going, okay, this is just like a hallucination yeah. or something. The Skull Cowboy shows up in like three panels. And it's not even like consecutive panels. No. It's no. just every once in a while he shows up, like Pop tips up. his hat and disappears. Doesn't he shoot somebody? Yeah, he shoots Shelly at some point. In, oh, and when I they suddenly feel oh, like one of his one of his hallucinations. Yeah. I suddenly feel like we're in preacher. Yeah, right. <laughs> John Wayne John shows Wayne. up and just tips his hat and shoots somebody and goes away. Right. right. <laughs> There's a lot of symbolism in the graphic novel, and I think he alludes to death in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. Right. He has the skull cowboy. He has. The very end, there's a somewhere there's a skull woman, and then there's another woman, just a brunette, mm-hmm. that Eric Draven makes out with randomly, and I'm like, okay, so is this lady death? I'm okay. I'll just and go with it. Whatever. I, I like probably him, so. completely just wrote those panels off where the skull cowboy popped in as just another incarnation of death and a hallucination, and moving on. Also, right geek points. Lady death has white. A couple of things that were dissimilar from the comic and the movie. The whole thing is set in Detroit. And in the comic, they buy a house mm-hmm. to move into, mm-hmm. and the violence happens in a car mm-hmm. rather than everything right. happening in like a tenement apartment. It is right. not a violation of house and body in right. the comic. But it's also right. Eric and Shelley are super white bread America in the comic. Right. Even though right. they're super goffy in eighties, nineties, whatever, they are super Americana in yeah, the comic. Because it's literally a house with white picket fence. Yes. And yeah. And in the movie they are urban god urchin types. And I think that I prefer that. The urban yeah. god, I'm down. I'm the same way. I'm like I absolutely like that opening storyline more from the movie than I did from the comic. And there's a fundamental thing here where it goes to Shelley's character. In the comic book, she's just Eric's love life. She's his person. She's a woman in the fridge. She's a woman. Yeah, she's exactly. By putting her in the apartment in the movie and she's fighting tenant eviction, she's fighting the corruption Mm -hmm. that eventually destroys them, gives her more character and I think it makes a more significant part than just being Eric's woman. Right. In the movie, I think they were trying to give him a little more momentum. 
Whereas what happens to Eric and Shelley in the book is more of a random act of violence. Yes. And it's more chaotic. They are not targeted. Right. Because they are Americana in the Mm -hmm. book. And the killers that kill them are tropes of drug use and gang warfare. In the book, it is Americana being destroyed by what is happening in urban America. The note that I had on that was in the comic, crime is more tribal. It's almost like the Warriors. T-Bird and I his gang right, <laughs> are a gang from and the Warriors. It goes back to their chant right there. Right. Fire, Fire it up! Fire it up! So, Justin, mm-hmm. did you bring us some questions? I did bring you some questions. Oh, so, I, I would like to do one more question. Oh, go Sorry, for it. No, 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 no more. I was all on board with all the literary quotes and what have you. Right. Until he asked Funboy, have you read Milton? And Funboy says, yeah. And I'm like, no, he has not. Minor, minor spoiler for the comic, but yes. That, I cannot dig that, I'm sorry. Also, also, while we were on the topic of fun boy, I'm going to drop this and speak of it vaguely. One of the parts that I liked is the deal he makes with fun boy. Mm. The mm-hmm. crow makes a deal at mm-hmm. one point, mm-hmm. and I love it. I wish that similar plot was also in the movie, mm-hmm. and I wish that you had seen that. Yeah. Because that would have been a very cool thing to add in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While I don't believe that Fun Boy had actually read Milton, <laughs> possibly that's what led the crow to make that deal. Yes. Because he was deeper than he... He was. goes into Fun Boy's apartment. He's in there with Darla. You do the whole thing where you shoot Fun Boy, you throw him in the shower, you do the thing with Darla... Mother is the name for God on the lips of all children. One of my favorite quotes. Yeah. Yeah. Go through that whole thing, and then Fun Boy wakes up, and the crow goes back to get something, which he does. Yeah. Goes back into the other room and looks over and sees there's Milton on the shelf. You don't even have to go through that. Right. Have you read Milton? You just, he looks over, there's yeah. Milton on the shelf, and he walks back in. It's another literary quote. He quotes something from Milton. Fun Boy is able to at least have enough of a cohesive, lucid mm-hmm. response right. to show that he's actually read the book that's in his apartment. Right. You go from there. It would be a very cool scene. But I don't know if it would really work or bring you out of the movie as much. There's enough crazy stuff going on in this movie. It was Ooh. the 90s. Entertainment wasn't supposed to be intellectual, especially this. So that's... <laughs> A good reason why it didn't happen. But so you follow up a quote from Edgar Allan Poe with "Shit on me." <laughs> no, it was motherfucker. Motherfucker, that's true. <laughs> I was actually thoroughly being a huge Poe fan in high school, and having done several papers and such on Poe when I was in high school, I was really entertained with all the Edgar Allan Poe quotes. In oh my, yes. The scene where Eric comes for the ring at the pawn shop—probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. As he's going through the rings, like, nope, nope, nope. And then he finds it, he has his flashback, and then he goes. Because he has spirits touch. Yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, because he's dead, right? Yeah, yeah. But then he goes over and he literally just starts throwing the rings at the pawn shop owner. Each one of these is a life you have taken. So I do have to bust out my wonderful partner here, real quick. We're watching that. Do you remember what you said when we watched that? And he's throwing rings. And you're like, oh, oh come on. <laughs> <laughs> she felt the need to defend pawn store owners. I did. <laughs> <laughs> so I I'm did. like, pawn owners are garbage. And I'm like, this is a great scene. You're like, no, pawn owners. <laughs> no, I said, I said, that's a trope. True, I did. I defend not particularly Gideon, but right, and I I, I felt that it was a false characterization of the majority of comp store owners. And I I felt the need to express that last night. I think they sidestepped that since Tintin's there right before that, and he's like, "What's this? A blood stain?" Like he knows where he's getting all of it, right? They do make him less than admirable. Yeah, but in the movie, he lets him go graphic novel. He just knocked. He just knocked. <laughs> in the movie, he lets him attempt to get away. If, if he wasn't absolutely like, oh my god, I have to run right now, he wouldn't have made it out. No, that's true. That's right. That characterization, mm-hmm. looking at 
how Gideon was drawn versus the actor. Oh my god, it's perfect. They get, it's perfect. He's even wearing the hat. Yeah. I yeah. didn't notice that until I was watching it this last time after reading the comics. You're giving me the high hat? <laughs> John Polito. Yes. Yeah. Who is in Miller's Crossing, which is one of my uh, favorite Owen yeah. Brothers movies. Yeah, they did a, a phenomenal job with a lot of the casting. I think they did. The guy they found for Fun Boy was excellent. Obviously, there are some changes. So actually, the bad guy cast, right, right. I usually like to bring up the cast myself, yeah. has been in tons of other... Lord Nikon and Hackers. Right? Yeah. Tintin. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Tintin was Lawrence Mason. Top Dollar Michael is Wincott. Westworld, 1991 and Robin Hood. He was no. Guy of Gisbrand. And Top Dollar is such a different character in the movie than he was in the comic book. And I think for it yes. was great. It was a great improvement. One of those great villains that you don't see coming. This guy's really, really badass. Back and forth between them. To give a little behind-the-curtain Wizard of Oz view on our show, tonight we're recording two episodes, and the second one that we're going to record is Kingsman. And I think the thread between these two is comic book villains that were made so much better in the movie. Right, right. Because Top Dollar and Samuel L. Jackson's character in Kingsman are both so much better. Spot. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Well, if we're going to talk about the movie, I'm going to be a movie sin. So we have the psychotic hot Asian chick trope. <laughs> yes. We have the yeah. psychotic villain trope. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we got the incest trope combined. That's true. With the <laughs> That's true. Within the first 15 minutes of the movie, you've got... Eric going back to his original penthouse apartment, and the crime scene tape is still across it's the still door. Still a year later. Like, year later, like well, nobody's ripped that down. Well, but that that actually could be because that is the Detroit. whole idea was they were trying to clear the building. They were trying to right. yeah, they everybody. were trying to evict everybody so that they could take over the property. But after a year, really, yeah. either they've evicted everybody yeah. or they haven't. In which case, either the building's gone right. or somebody's right. ripped down the tape. Down the tape. But then there's also the black top down on his luck trope. Ah, Ernie Hudson. He's How amazing. Do you, right? <laughs> Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. Ballers, Blue Bloods, Arrow. Putting, Arrow. A, putting a pin in that, I've got an Ernie Hudson question later. I have a whole series of questions. Sarah in the movie, the kid, was so much better mm, than in mm-hmm. the movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So, yes. so much better yes. than in the movie. I think I've talked about almost everything else in the comic Top Dollar is kind of the two-bit thug, head of a gang, yeah, yeah. but in the movie... But with a guitar. In the movie... He's the kingpin. He is... In the storyline, it says that Top Dollar is a, quote-unquote, world-class crime lord, <laughs> which I don't think I buy, but okay. I think that that's all that I had. Oh, yeah, the whole storyline with the crow mm-hmm. in the movie versus the crow in the comic... Mm-hmm. And Eric's invincibility and the tie to the crow. Mm-hmm. You find a kryptonite for Superman in the movie. Right. So. Gother Man. Gother Man. <laughs> Before we get into mm-hmm. questions, do you have any. You know me, I always like to bring up the cast. A couple people that we haven't mentioned yet are David Patrick Kelly yeah. as T Bird. Most of the bad guys in this movie randomly pop up in tons of other movies. Mm-hmm. David Patrick Kelly was Last Man Standing, John Wick, yeah. mm-hmm. Kate Pax. He's been in a bunch of episodes of Law and Order. We have to mention Grange, Top Dollars number one, Tony Todd, who was literally Candyman. Yes, yes, yep. He's been in tons and tons of yes. horror movies. That's his shtick. Plus, if you haven't seen The Man from Earth, you should watch The Man from Earth. It's one of my favorite movies. He's one of the main characters in that. I think it's interesting how going to T-Bird, he's kind of the mid-level thug in the movie, whereas he's the top guy in the comic. He's remorseful. He knows what's coming. And he's defiant to the end. In the movie, when that moment comes, he shows remorse. Yeah. Yeah. Abashed the devil stood and realized how awful goodness was. There are moments in the movie for me, and maybe I'm just because I'm biased and I was a teenager and just in love with it. Even the cliches seemed done well. You can accept a cliche, a trope, if it's done well or in a unique way, or when you have good acting like that, you can kind of get away with it. It's hard to talk about a movie like this. Mm-hmm. That has had so much impact on you. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Bear, I didn't meet until 2000. Jen, I didn't meet until seven years ago. But I've known you since high school. 
when I had my mullet, my black fedora, wearing a black trench coat. You still had the mullet when I met you. It's true. It was awful. <laughs> Way pre-Columbine. This is 93. Yep. yep. But wearing all black, mm-hmm. wearing a trench coat all year round, and mm-hmm. a black fedora, it was the style. It was how yeah. you set yourself apart. Right. And I was one of the only ones in our school that did it. Yep. Looking at it now, are there issues okay. with the crow god? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, we've mentioned the CGI. We've mentioned the crazy characters. We've mentioned the invincibility throughout most of the movie. It is revenge porn in a yes. lot of ways. This is the 90s I spit on your grave for white dude. This right. very, very much is right. that sort of story, but right. it holds this nostalgia. And it's hard to see past that. When you have Brandon Lee being his brilliant self, and then ultimately it's, it's what he's left with is his legacy because he's, right. he's killed making the movie. So, so it has a certain reverence for me for that. Okay. When I lived in Los Angeles, I worked on a movie set for a couple of days. It was for a movie called Exhibit A that never really went past a week's worth of shooting. It was so bad that I went from gopher to first assistant AD... Wow. Uh, in two days. Wow. Because I grabbed, in California, you fell upward? That too. <laughs> but I grabbed a clipboard at one point because the director had taken three hours to do one scene of a car pulling up. And I basically said, this is how much time we have. We can break it down. We can follow the schedule if we do this now and handed it to the producer friend of mine that had brought me on that was paying me a pack of cigarettes a day to work on this movie set. <laughs> oh my God. But because I was in that position, I got to be there when the stuntman mm. did the big assassination scene with Tommy Guns and stuff. And he was, a for as cheap as the production was, mm-hmm. this man was a straight professional. He said, no one is on this set unless they absolutely need to be. Mm-hmm. The people that do not need to be in the shot are over here. He said, and everyone will pay attention to every word I say or I will kick them off the set. He goes, if you think that this is just fun and games, ask Brandon Lee. And that was how Hollywood, 10 years later, was Mm -hmm. the stunt coordinators were basically saying, this is very serious and people have died. A piece of metal gets stuck in Mm -hmm. a blank and an actor is dead. So let me just bring that down. Question. With a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy, music is such an integral part and defines that movie. Both the graphic novel and the movie of The Crow are, again, have that very symbiotic relationship. It's important to note at this point, the graphic novel has several song lyrics yes. throughout. He incorporates his poetry, others' poetry, and song lyrics from Joy Division, The Cure. It has such a huge part, so how does it the novel and the movie. What's your input on, on that? And again, we're going back to high school. Of course. We have uh, to. It's my, the 90s. <laughs> my first car was a brown Volvo station wagon that I remember I, that my dad <laughs> sold me for $1,000. The first purchase I made for that car was to put a CD deck in it. And the Crow soundtrack, other than Nine Inch Nails, Further Down the Spiral, Tori mm. Amos's Under the Pink... And Offspring Smash. Mm. The Crow soundtrack was the fourth CD that pretty much just worked in rotation. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, probably until I graduated in 1997. <laughs> nice. Occasionally other things. Right. But those were probably my four top albums played in my car at all times. It was my introduction to The Cure. I knew too, Friday yeah. I'm in Love, but I didn't know The Cure had done it. Right, right. Burn was the first song that I knew was the cure. One of my favorite all-time songs to this day. So from another perspective, I knew all of that music. Mm-hmm. That was my genre. Right. And so uh, The Crow, and I was, as you were talking, I was trying to think of other movies during that time that used similar soundtracks. That was part of what really drew me into the movie. Right. was because the first few notes of the song would start playing, mm-hmm. and I knew exactly what the mood of the scene was going to be because yep. I know that. Not the same mood, but probably the closest that the 90s had to similar was the Natural Born Killer soundtrack. Yeah, I would agree. That's an amazing soundtrack. It is an amazing soundtrack, produced by Trent Reznor. Yeah. He was also a producer for the Crow soundtrack. There were like eight producers for the Crow soundtrack. And like looking through the who's who of the 80s and 90s. Uh, Yeah, you're looking at me like, what did you think about the music? Dude, when this movie 
came out, when the comic came out, I was such a band geek that modern music was not stuff that I listened to. Yeah, I'd heard this stuff on the radio, like if I'd been on the school bus or if I happened to be like, have the radio on in the car or something like that. But most of the stuff that I was listening to, if it wasn't classical or jazz, it was because I was hanging out with people that were listening to like, Slayer and Pantera and stuff like that. I knew the songs when I read through it. Of course, for me, the first time I'm reading through it is just a few months ago. I'm hearing the songs in my head. I'm like, oh, that's neat. But it didn't really evoke an emotional response for me. So if this wasn't something that you actually read back when it came out, it probably isn't going to have the same kind of strike home to the heart that it had for you guys. One of my questions, we'll piggyback directly off of this, because I had some mm -hmm. on the soundtrack, uh, and maybe, Barry, you won't be able to jump in on this since you just said you're not that familiar. The first part is best song on the soundtrack. My favorite is Burn. I didn't listen to the soundtrack on repeat. I thought it was good. Okay. But... For me, it was the Nine Inch Nails cover of the Joy that's, Division song, that's Dead Souls. Souls. That song. First of all, so that amazing. song, I have since listened to the Joy Division version just because I have a link with it. I would put it in the lists of songs that other bands did better than the original. Mm -hmm. For example, famously, Trent Reznor himself said, when Johnny Cash did hurt, Trent said that's no, no longer my song. I that's want you Johnny's to shut song. your whore mouth right now. <laughs> <laughs> Trent gonna... Reznor did a lovely job, not better than the original. <laughs> you know, no if way. the original artist says that somebody else did it better than him, I'm kind of like, okay, I'll take his word for it. Yeah, well, yeah, but yeah, that's not the case yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Because mm. the original artist was dead by the time Trent Reznor did mm. that song. Yeah. The other difference is, Okay, I'm totally defending Joy Division now. But I feel like I have to say this. Joy Division did that song and made that sound before there were computerized synthesizers. Yes. And what have they physically made all of those sounds. Yep. When you listen to it, it may be very spare compared to any covers that were made. It, it's haunting. If you, listen, if you listen to Joy Division... And as a musician, because I'm also in a band, I see a lot of influence on modern music. Because I'm listening to Joy Division going, I can hear that guitar piece even holding weight now. I didn't get into Joy Division until a few years ago. You talk to Trent Reznor, you talk to Henry Rollins, you talk to so many artists. Both of which were producers on this Right, and they, they will say Joy Division influenced them. Oh, absolutely. And some of the progressions, they were ahead of their time. And Ian Curtis, it's so sad that we don't, it, maybe, maybe we would have made a difference. I don't know. But that time period, you didn't talk about mental illness. And even today, we're struggling to try to get, destigmatize de it. And even today, we've lost great artists with Chester Bennington and Chris Cornell. I just wish that we had a better handle on that so we don't lose these great artists. They were ahead of their time. And I think had they had time, you would be like, oh, yeah, they, were, they totally turned out to be this great, phenomenal thing. I don't take that away. Right. I personally am not a person that enjoys Led Zeppelin. I okay. feel that Led Zeppelin, I will not listen to their music. Nirvana, same way, even though wow. I grew up in that time. I'm just not a Nirvana or Led Zeppelin person. Mm -hmm. I can respect what they contributed to bring modern music. I do believe that Kurt Cobain right. had to die so we could fight the flu. <laughs> I pulled it up. Thanks for so, love. Just the bands on the soundtrack are amazing. Oh, We've yeah. mentioned The Cure. We've me mentioned Nine Inch Nails, but Rage Against the Machine. Yep, that's my, that was my Rage Against the Machine song. took one of their B-sides and renamed it so that they could put Darkness on the Crows soundtrack and it would be 100% the Crows. Stone Temple Pilots, Violent Femmes, Helmet, Pantera, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, The Jesus and Mary Chain, a personal favorite. Yep. And Jane Sibbery, another personal mm -hmm. favorite. Mm -hmm. She was on another soundtrack, which is amazing. And if you haven't heard it, it's from a movie called Until the End of the World by Van Benders. Mm -hmm. Great movie. Amazing soundtrack. Yeah. So that leads to my second question. And Barry, you actually might be able to jump into this one. Best movie soundtracks. Give me three if you've got them of the 1990s. <laughs> oh. Everybody's going to laugh at me for some I've got mine written down if you guys need a little time. So the Crow soundtrack's on there. I would say the Crow soundtrack, Natural Born Killers, and you're going to laugh at me, Mortal Kombat soundtrack. That would have been my four. I had the first two. Mm -hmm. My third was Hackers. 
Oh, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Oh. Uh, the reason I like Mortal Kombat is because that introduced me to Typo Negative. Oh, and yeah. One of my favorite bands, and that's one of my favorite songs. That song, even if oh, I love how many things later we're going to be talking about these same things. Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, good one. Yeah, good one. yeah. yeah. Empire Records was that in the movie? Oh yeah, yeah, That movie's dripping. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm gonna have to say until the end of the world because that was like I think it that was, was 90s 90, too. Okay, I think it was 90. Okay, it was very early, uh, 1991 maybe. All right. Yeah, you guys are gonna hate me because most of the stuff that I was listening to at that point in time. Probably the, I don't even think that was 90s, though. That was probably later. The soundtrack from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. No, that was 90s. I pretty much wore that out. Let's because Yeah, because I was a sappy bitch in high school. That's why. <laughs> um, <laughs> were we all. <laughs> no, no, we weren't. <laughs> you a sappy bitch now, though. Yeah, so Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I would probably have to go with in the 90s, personally. I think I was listening to the Phantom of the Opera, the original, mm. but that oh, was in the 90s. That was a 90s movie. Pulp Fiction was one of the ones that just kept coming up over and over again. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I could think of a third one. Oh, Desperado. Uh, I forgot about that one. Desperado, oh, Desperado was, a was a good one. Yeah. Judgment Night was another really good one. Mm -hmm. Good soundtrack oh, of a movie no, I never watched. I, now I remember what the other one. The other one that I played the hell out of was Batman. The one that was all Prince. That was '88. What oh, was that '80s? Oh, yeah, that was damn! 80, 80, 80. I was wondering. Um, Lost yeah. Highway was that '90s? Oh, Lost Highway was totally '90s. Oh, yeah, that's really good. Another oh. Trent Reznor yep, produced. Yep. Yep. So. David Lynch movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Lost Highway, great soundtrack, weird movie. Well, that's David yeah. Lynch. And David Lynch, so now okay. i got to mention the voice guns because Jason Taylor is going to be with us on our next episode and I get to give him shit about it. <laughs> he brought it up. It's his fault. Sorry. <laughs> Jen kickstarted a role-playing game that's just a bunch of cards okay. that you form a David Lynch movie. <laughs> Well, basically, it's a, yeah, it's a role-playing game, yeah. so it's, you basically create David Lynch-esque right. world. Plot, yeah. yeah. I, I have to play this thing. Yeah. It's going to be awful. <laughs> it's it's going to be absolutely awful, but I want to play it. It seems your questions are leading to other people having their questions. So. <laughs> well, we've already talked kind of about Detroit, the setting, a little bit. I do want to kind of go back to that, actually, because... Why Detroit? Obviously, I imagine not only is the author from there, it's, there's that familiarity, but I think there's other useful things. Well, I, I mean, first, my first gut instinct is that at the time that it came out, it was so easy to point at Detroit and go, look at all the violence that's going on. Look, it's a devastation. Well, Which of Detroit. you Motor City motherfuckers <laughs> wants to bet me this one isn't? <laughs> so I think Detroit was a gimme because it really was kind of the worst, almost dystopian yeah. in the country exactly. in the 80s and 90s. And it was, white flight was nowhere more obvious okay. than, yeah. than it was in Detroit. <laughs> right. I remember living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in the early 90s and going to shows in Detroit. And there was a fairly large theater next to kind of a hole-in-the-wall punk theater. Mm -hmm. They were on the same block. Really weird. I remember going to see a Ramones show at the punk theater nice. at the same time Steve and Edie were playing at the other theater. <laughs> so you've got kids in leather jackets crossing paths with women in fur coats and men in tuxedos. Yep. It was like the most surreal thing. And the whole neighborhood, even though these theaters are there, is completely bombed out. Yep. There's nothing there. There are no stores. There are no homes. Like, nobody lives there. Right. These theaters are there, right. you know. Well, I mean, you have a city that, for a while, it doesn't happen anymore. For those of you who don't know, they had a, an annual event on October 30th. It was fun to set fire to houses right. and all sorts of stuff. Devil's let's just, just go. Let's, it's Devil's Night. Let's go set fire to things. Yeah. Cool. Play that up in the movie. I want you to light a fire so big the gods are going to notice. The city reflected the tragedy that the story was. Detroit still has so much character, as do so many cities in America that have been devastated by various things. It's crazy because you look at, this was 93. 
So it's before Eminem, mm-hmm. before Kid Rock. Before ICP, before all of these Mm -hmm. influences that came out of Detroit that are very, very different in who they are, but all of them are a reflection of that white flight, bombed out, Mm -hmm. dystopian atmosphere. It's just coping in different ways. And it's the closest analogy we have now, since Detroit is poisoned and hardly anybody lives there anymore. The closest analogy we have now is what's happening with Washington, D.C. has started to become the new Detroit. It was going that way for a long time. It is interesting that you can take this city, which looks dystopian, Mm -hmm. could have been Detroit in the 90s. (laughs) It just took a few more motivated people to set some fires and Ernie Hudson. (laughs) Because how do you go wrong with Ernie Hudson? (laughs) Right? (laughs) All right. Speaking of Ernie Hudson, see how I did that? Yeah, nice, nice, nice. Officer Elbrecht, Winston Zedmore, which was better for Ernie Hudson? Not which was a better movie, not which was a better character, which was better for Ernie Hudson? Well, they're about to remake Ghostbusters, so I'm going to go that would with... Be my gut instinct. Yeah. That I don't know. I'm going to go with really? Officer Elbrecht. I'm going to go with he... Officer Elbrecht, too, because I think that he really got shafted. I think he got to act... In The Crow, he got to be anything oh, other than... Winston is third to Rick Moranis and Annie Potts. And he's a main Ghostbuster. But he's still, In two movies. Yeah, he's still got two movies, and now they're going to remake it. And I'm pretty sure, if I remember it, they're bringing him back for it, aren't they? Right, but I think yeah. that his character was so... Not even secondary, right. is what Josh's mm. point is. And I think that he really had an opportunity... In the comic, he wasn't a primary character, but I think in the movie, he really was. He was a pivotal character in the movie. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if you look at his IMDb profile, the list of movies that he's known for is literally Ghostbusters, The Crow. And then, like, Ghostbusters 2 is, like, the fifth movie down or something like that. If you're asking me straight up based off of what's best for Ernie Hudson, I'm like, uh, Ghostbusters is coming back. The Crow is not coming back anytime soon. <laughs> that you think. <laughs> it's come back many times. I've watched a couple of them, and I was really hopeful that Jason Momoa was going to be cast for that. Oh, right, the new one that yeah, they were going to do. I was like, that would be fun to watch. Jason Momoa is fun to watch, in my opinion. But. Yeah. But he also would fit the character as described in the comic. Very well. Aqua Crow. Aqua Crow. (laughs) (laughs) So, around the table, favorite quotable quote of the movie. Josh? Did you know Lake Erie actually caught fire from all the shit that was floating in it? Wish I could have been there. Jen? Yeah, I I don't know. I have no no idea. Jesus Christ? Stop me if you heard this one. Jesus Christ walks into a hotel. <laughs> he can't see me for three nails. And he asks, can you put me up for the night? Which is actually in the comic. Yes, yes, yes. it is. It is one of the few times <laughs> that Eric jokes in the comic. Yep. So, fair? Uh, personally, me, right off the bat, because, like I said, still sappy bitch. And when I saw this, it's been my favorite line. Since the first time I saw the movie till now, when you hear the the monologue in the beginning, it says, two people are meant to be together, nothing can keep them apart. Mm, yeah. S- straight off the bat, you know what the story is going for, where this whole thing is going, and why we're here. So we talked about Jason Momoa mm-hmm. and the possibility of a new. It has been 26 years since The Crow came out. God, I feel old. Modern day, who do you put in the makeup? In the same film. Let's say that it can be another crow, but it is actually well done and well written. Uh, I mean, the crow is always kind of the same. Dude is wronged, dude comes back. Person is wronged, person comes back. Let's go with that. Because... We didn't see a trailer. It was actually an episode of the show where there was a female crow that came back. So I was going to say, that needs to happen. Well, and that's where I am. Jen is going to disagree, but... Ruby Rose. Mm, I like Why it. would I disagree? That's I like that's a great like Ruby. <laughs> it's not that I don't like her. I didn't like her in that movie. Okay. I didn't or like her. Or as Batwoman. It's fine. <laughs> I don't really care about Batwoman. Sorry, Kat. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Ruby Rose has the action chops. She's proven herself time and again to kind of do that. 
And I think having either a lesbian or a non-binary crow mm-hmm. would be a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. I would say Gal Gadot, but she's so iconic as Wonder Woman already. I yeah. I think that'd be... Oh, I totally know this. After already having seen Joker, I want to see Joaquin Phoenix. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. We've done Joker. If you saw Joker and you didn't like Joker, stop listening to the show. I haven't <laughs> seen Joker yet. I, <laughs> I, I watched it last night. I'm not kidding. Okay. First time. Joker was awesome. Yeah. Maybe there wasn't enough DC stuff in there. Maybe there wasn't enough superhero stuff in there for people. This movie was a slow descent into madness. And having seen Joaquin Phoenix put on makeup already, I would love to see him do it again in a goth version. Only now we're an undead as opposed to a crazy clown. Jason Momoa would mm. be interesting. Just I think he could pull it off. The other thought that I actually had was, what about, what if, Woody Harrelson as kind of a flashback to Natural Born Killers. Like, yeah. to see him do a bad guy role again. Well, not really a bad guy. You're about to see that. vengeful guy. Because he's Carnage yeah, he's in Venom 2. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, that yes. would be awesome. Yeah. Yes, he's going to be Cletus Cassidy. Justin, you got anybody before... Yeah, why in the movie do they change the order of the targets from the order of the graphic novels? With the gra- graphic novel, you have a different order of people yeah. he goes after, versus the movie, where it's a different sequence, and I have my opinion on this, and I'll let you guys go first. If you like Skank in the movie, yeah, uh, and you're going into the comic to try and see some funny Skank scenes, it's not going to happen much more <laughs> fleshed out <laughs> in the more, movie. There's a lot more brevity in yeah. <laughs> I actually stopped at that point when I was reading the comic. I was like, that's gang over there. Skank's dead. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Lots of people die on this, folks. Lots of yes. Spoiler alert. People die. <laughs> If you didn't get that from watching the movie, right? I don't think we can really spoil that, really. I think in the movie, I can't even say it goes from most dangerous to least dangerous, but it kind of does. Honestly, in the movie, I think it just basically goes from the first guy that he happened to come across right. on the street. Right, I think it was more opportunity. Yeah, than it was absolutely land. opportunity, and then I found out this is where, now, now I've got a bit of information, and let's just keep moving up to who called the shots, who made this happen. Right. Again, Comic book, I'm a little well, bit of a loss. I think in the comic books, he went from the bottom to the yeah, top yes. with the intention of not only the physical harm that he was hoping to occur, <laughs> the psychological. But the psychological. He talked a lot about pain and fear. Yes. The, right. the graphic novel talked about pain and fear, pain and fear together, yep. pain separately, and fear separately. In the graphic novel, there was a plan. Eric had a plan mm-hmm. of how he was going to address. Mm-hmm. He was working his way up. Yes. Right. Whereas in the movie, yeah, it, was, it seemed more opportunistic. He's finding leads and he's working the leads. Well, he goes from, right, he finds Tintin. Tintin leads him to Gideon. Right. Gideon leads him to Fun Boy. Yep. Fun Boy leads him to T Bird. And Gag happens to be there and then runs. And that's how Top Dollar gets involved in the movie. From a movie perspective, it's very tight. It is bam, 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 bam. bam. In the comic, there's some more meandering. Yes. And some more street level, I would say even Luke Cage, Jessica Jones Mm -hmm. style. I'm going to go beat up these dudes and these dudes and these dudes. Except it's I'm going to kill these dudes and these dudes and these dudes to find my way to where I'm going. And that's what I th- why I think they did that in the movie, because it is tighter. Again, you're wanting to appeal to a broader audience. Right. You want it to make sense a little more, and it just seemed more sequential to me that way. Not necessarily to the bottom to the top. But right. It was easier to follow in the movie than it was right. in the graphic novel. The thing that threw me in the graphic novel when I read it, because I read it after I watched the movie, I, like, Top Dollar's just kind of an afterthought. So he's yeah. middle of the pack in the yeah. graphic novel, whereas in the movie, they make him the, he's a the man... He's a, what did I say? He's a world-class crime lord of Detroit. He's the vampire mayor of Detroit. With his Asian sister girlfriend. My girlfriend, sister girlfriend, and his katana. Allegedly. I do have to point out that I do like the fact that Gideon runs to him and he kills him with a rapier. The whole, even though it was just like, come on. The psychotic Asian Mm -hmm. woman 
who is also sort like of a mystic of some a mystic kind, mystic or a witch yeah. or whatever. Right. Malkavian <laughs> has a right. thing about eyes, <laughs> which is not Better in the graphic it. novel at all. No, no, no she, she is not, not at all. And the no. whole thing, yeah, that yeah. that whole storyline, I think it added more. Mm-hmm. T Bird is unrepentant, mm-hmm. but in the movie, you have three people who are not afraid of him. Mm-hmm. And actively try to figure out how to stop him. More, because Tintin also is not afraid of him at all at the very beginning. Off screen, he says he confided in me before he ran out of breath. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't yeah. know if that's out of fear or out of, well, you can die anyway, might yeah. as well. I think that that scene could have been more drawn out or had a secondary scene to it without the gore, but to show how Tintin was when he went out. But again, he's the first death. He's a major, he's a minor character. So let's talk about Brandon Lee. Yeah. Because we can't not talk about Brandon Lee. And son of Bruce Lee, grew up in that whole thing, did a few martial arts movies before this, but this was his coming out party. This was yep. going to make him an action star. Nope. You had mentioned Mortal Kombat earlier. Mm-hmm. Yep. He was already cast as Johnny Cage oh, um, I didn't know that. before production started. The Wachowskis were writing The Matrix with him in mind to be Neo at Holy this point crap. in 1994. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Would um, we even have had Keanu Reeves as John Wick? Well, that's yeah. the question that I had. Brandon Lee, John Wick. Better? Oh. I don't know. Keanu is he's so good in He that really movie. has that. Keanu in that role really reminds me of Big Trouble in Little China and how you have Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, yeah. Kurt Russell who is just a drunken truck driver. I am still the most confident, dirty, homeless bum you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> right. Well, but looking at it by all means, and Big I have Trouble in Little China should not have. No, we no. shouldn't have, but I have, that, I have that same feeling with John Wick. Yeah, he's got tons of money, so he's not a dirty homeless bum, but he very much plays off that, I'm tired, I'm worn out, I don't want to do this anymore, and then here we go again. So, I would have said no, had I not watched it again last night, because here are the parts of The Crow that I thought I knew. I knew the order of deaths, I knew Eric coming back, I knew that at one point he plays a guitar on a rooftop and smashes it for right. no reason. No good right. reason. With, a, with an amp, how is it powered? We don't right. know. We don't know. <laughs> right. Lightning! It's in the rain, so maybe it is. Maybe it's lightning! <laughs> I knew all of that. What I had forgotten is how charismatic and likable Brandon Lee is in that role. Mm-hmm. I was just there watching was a- this today before we started the episode, and he really reminds me of Dwayne Johnson. Right. That casual confidence and then yes. in sudden switches to intensity. The Crow in the comic, and what I remember from the movie before we watched it again, was this gothy, angsty, yeah, he has quips, he has Poe quotes and stuff, but his moments with Sarah are extremely tender. Yeah. When he breaks the mask, where he smiles or he becomes Eric, mm-hmm. and there's a very dis- all the time. right. There's a very distinct break that is only done in facial expression and inflection between right. when Eric's talking and when the crow is talking. I had completely forgotten that, and it broke my heart again that he died because. He could have been so good. He, he was developing his range. I agree with you. I love Keanu Reeves. There are times though I'm just like, dude, be a little angrier. Dude, <laughs> stop saying whoa. Come oh, on. There's something to be said about the range, and I think he could have... A quarter century later, would Brandon right. Lee have been... What would Brandon Lee have been? I actually disagree with you about Keanu Reeves. I think that that's what he used to be. True. And I think that he actually, I think Brandon Lee would be a lot like Keanu Reeves is today. Keanu Reeves is a deep fool. He can be. Yeah, I agree. There's so much more there than he allows people to see. And I feel like Brandon Lee would probably be similar Mm -hmm. in his personality and the way that he acts. My answer to your question of what actor would he be most like is another person that died too soon. That's Heath Ledger. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, God, yes. And after another right. face painting session. Right. But another guy would do a phenomenal job as a, as a pro. But watching 
this again. The times that he is Eric and the times that I really enjoyed him most, I saw a little bit of Heath Ledger there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I watched the Heath Ledger Joker, every other movie where you watch Heath Ledger, you're like, this is Heath Ledger. Yeah, he's just doing an amazing amazing job, but this is Heath Ledger. Yeah, you know, yeah. whether it's The Order or 10 Things I Hate About You Patriot. or The Patriot <laughs> or what was the... I love yeah. that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a great movie, but I love that movie. Uh, you run down all these movies that he's been in and then you watch him in Batman and you're like, I totally forgot that this was Heath Ledger. I had no... Yeah, I had to God. stop like halfway through and go, okay, that is actually physically his face if I wipe the makeup off. You almost forget it's a Batman movie. I would hazard to go as far as that particular Batman movie was the best Joker movie ever. Much like I would say about Thor Ragnarok is the best Hulk movie ever. This is another one of those one and dunce. Well, except for... Uh, <laughs> there are more movies than there are comics. Are we good with this? Are we good with the comic ending where it did? Yes. It's a complete arc. It doesn't need to go on. Right. I would agree. I absolutely agree. It brings up a new concept for... A superhero trope, but we don't need to tell any more story with it, really. We understand that this could happen to anyone. Well, and I disagree with the superhero trope because the whole idea is the crow brings a person back to avenge. Sure, so it's not actually, yeah, it's not actually a superhero, but it's a vengeance. Okay, I would say that this is even a more gothic Ghost Rider. Oh, yeah. Absolutely absolutely where I was going to go with it. But I would be more interested in more Crow than I would be in more Ghost Rider. Oh, God, yes. Yes, agreed. And in fact, the Henry Rollins song, the Rollins band song <laughs> that they put on the Crow soundtrack. Ghost Rider. It's Ghost Rider, <laughs> and it's about Ghost Rider, right. the Marvel character. I, I don't know. Can we get the Ghost Rider from the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? That almost happened on Disney Plus, and then they pulled the plug on it. I know. I know. I liked him, too. Justin, give us a little bit of what's going on with you. Plug. Give us your band. My band's called Legion of Kings. We've been on Noise from the Garage here in Iowa a bunch. And then I'm doing my thing, trying to teach, trying to be a good husband, father. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Graphically Novel. We thank you very much for joining us. You can find us everywhere. Facebook. <laughs> you can find us on... We have, still have a Twitch. Not doing what? anything yeah, with it. Don't, <laughs> please don't do anything with it. <laughs> <laughs> we have a Twitter. Graphically Novel is N-O-B-L. Because apparently we are just too much for Twitter to hold. Our next episode will be Kingsman coming up in one week. We will see you there. And in the meantime, take it away, Vandello.
Tschüss.